Tonight, we talk about the final Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Harry Potter 8, I believe. Um, over the last however many weeks, um, we've been pretty consistently sort of re-watching these Harry Potter films, um, reviewing them, um, basically giving our impressions, um, like our impressions in hindsight, I guess, right? And um, yeah, I, I've got to say that I am going to miss doing this because one thing about these Harry Potter films is that they have consistently been pretty entertaining, even so far down the track now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss it. But anyway, before before we close this out, we still have to talk about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. And um, to join me tonight, um, I've got Anager, Gerald, and Mags. Say hello, everyone. Hello. Salute. Um, yeah, so Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Which one is this one? Well, it's the last one. It is the one where we start off and it basically picks off immediately after Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, which we discussed last time and we basically kind of agreed that from a plot perspective, there wasn't really a strong impetus in that plot, right? I mean, we knew that they needed to destroy the Horcruxes, but a lot of the characters didn't really know where to do, like where to go, what to do, or any of that sort of stuff. And the first little bit of this film kind of is similar to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One in the sense that it is it is like this continu- the continuing adventures of Harry trying to figure out where the Horcruxes are and trying to destroy them and. The first bit of this film is basically the raid on the Gringotts Vault, on Bellatrix Lestrange's Gringotts Vault. And Harry basically um, figures out that Bellatrix has something stashed away in her Gringotts Vault, which is potentially a Horcrux, and they team up with um, Group Hook, I want to say his name is, the Goblin. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I, I... my recollection is that his name is Griphook. Um, but anyway, they team up with him and they raid the Gringotts Vault. Um, the second part of this film, um, and the bulk of this film, um, and the bit of the film that I probably enjoy the most, is basically immediately after the raid on Gringotts, they apparate to Hogsmeade, which is pretty close to where Hogs, Hogwarts is, and the trio, Ron, Harry and Hermione um, make a return trip to Hogwarts, the school that we have kind of been missing for like all of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Yeah, and from there it very, very quickly escalates because over the course of essentially a night, I want to say, like a day and a night, um, Hogwarts becomes... (laughs) A war zone where Voldemort figures out, or Harry essentially announces himself, that he is at Hogwarts, and um, they expel the Death Eaters that are currently sort of in control of Hogwarts, and then Voldemort attacks Hogwarts and demands that Harry is handed over. Um, And so yeah, the Battle of Hogwarts commences. Um, It is a pretty spectacular battle with... um, quite a few 
sort of pretty disturbing scenes. <laughs> um, and it kind of culminates in, like, this is this is the climax of this entire book series, where Harry faces up to his destiny um, and confronts Voldemort. And this whole scenario is resolved. Um, and basically, spoilers. I mean, it's a spoilers podcast, but Harry is able to defeat Voldemort. Um, yeah, so... And then the last part of this film, the, a very short part of this film, is kind of the epilogue of this film. And I know that Mags has something to say about that, but I'm going to leave Mags to talk about that. But the epilogue is basically, I think it's 19 years on, or 17 years on, or something like that. Um, and it's kind of where everyone is after these momentous events. So, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Look, for my part, I, I, I enjoyed this film. I think they absolutely landed this. Um, I remember the first time I watched it, I was riveted. I think the highlight for me is absolutely the Battle of Hogwarts from basically the moment they expel the Carrows and um, the school starts fortifying itself. Um, for me, that's when my blood really starts pumping. I, I think these scenes are really... Like, the Battle of Hogwarts in itself is really, really entertaining. And um, I guess similar to more recently, like, something like the Avengers, like, Endgame, like, it really feels like they landed that climax, right? The final confrontation... Like, the confrontation that Harry has with Voldemort in the woods, where Voldemort essentially kills Harry, um, is emotionally very satisfying and I really enjoy the scene where Dumbledore um, talks with Harry Harry in kind of like this limbo between life and death um, and then subsequently when Voldemort goes back to Hogwarts bringing Harry's body that entire climax is amazing as well um, I think the final scene where Voldemort and Harry are just struggling with each other as they as Voldemort is apparating um, is like an amazingly well done scene and like uh, a really um, clever use of CG that sort of aligns with kind of the emotional um, fight that is kind of going on. Um, yeah, like uh, I, I think, and as part of that Battle of Hogwarts, it's probably one of my favourite scenes in Harry Potter, which is um, the whole resolution of the Malfoy story, which is um, how Narcissa and Draco are able to get out of Hogwarts. Um, I, I, I really, I mean, I'll talk about that later, but I really love that scene as well. So yeah, generally, I think they absolutely landed it. Um, having said that, I, I, I think there are probably a few problems with this film. Like, I'll be honest, right? Like, I, I think beyond the Battle of Ho Hogwarts, I think some of the searching for the random Horcruxes, the random ones I want to say, are basically like the cup and the... Um, diadem of Ravenclaw, they were not as ripping for me <laughs> as some of the other stuff that was going on. Um, and in reality, I think that if they had wanted to condense Deathly Hallows Part 1 and Part 2 into a single film and made it into a tighter film, they could have made it five Horcruxes and no one would have really batted an eyelid, really. But anyway, that's it's kind of like my sort of very initial views. I still think this was a great film. I think the Harry Potter series absolutely lands it. I think this is a great series that is worthy of rewatch again and again. Um, who wants to shoot next? <laughs> Look, I completely agree with every word you said. Um, it was so packed with 
action and adventure. We saw all our favourite characters. Gerald and I kind of missed Hagrid for a while. We were like, where's Hagrid? But he came in there right <laughs> at the end, you know, did the emotional carrying Harry in. Um, just loved all of it. But it seems like there isn't as much to say about it as um, some of the other films other than, you know, that I loved it. It was Packer's <laughs> action. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, you know, it had some really upsetting moments in it when we found out, I think, I guess for the first time in the movie series, that Harry would have to die. Um, and I'm not sure the movie really went into depth as to why, but I guess if you had book knowledge, you would you piece together the fact that, okay, Harry has been accidentally created as like an ape Horcrux or whatever, and so um, that Horcrux also has to, do, has to be killed, and I guess that's, you know, you would have to kill Harry, and Voldemort would have to do it. Um, not entirely sure. I guess the person who makes a Horcrux has the ability to destroy it as well, which is why Voldemort had to do it. Um, not entirely sure what the purpose of the resurrection stone is, right? For something that is like a hallow, so very, very important, and Harry was gifted it and he had to figure out where it was and, and, and possess it, I'm not sure what it did other than bring him, um, you know, visions of his family that had passed on, which I think he's had those visions before anyway. Also, I guess, you know, whenever he's had them, there's been a reason for them appearing. And I guess they were important for giving him, you know, the moral strength and, you know, conviction to carry on and the, you know, the ability to do it, not be alone. But it did kind of seem like really all the Hallows were a little bit lame. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, if you think about it, I'm not sure that any of them or all of them together really did as much as their legend, you know, would have them do. So that was interesting, I suppose. Yeah. Um, You know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Look, I I 100% agree with that. And I think Mags brought this up with me as we were watching it. Um, she was basically talking about, well, you know, so you've got this legend of the Hallows, right? Um, and you think that with this legend of these three objects, that if you combine these objects, then like when their powers combine, you get some sort of Captain Planet effect. And like... going to say Captain Planet. Exactly. Yeah. But it's not really. They're just kind of like three things. That but are even there. on their own, they're kind of pretty lame things. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the, the invisibility cloak just allows Harry to get up to mischief at all yeah. the rest yeah. of the time. Yeah, <laughs> so... Lungs, like... Go on. I was just going to say, if you combine them all, then really you'd be um, an invisible man sitting under a cloak, holding a stone and a wand. That's what <laughs> talking to all your dead relatives that no one else yeah, can see. Right. Using it to illuminate, like, because you're under a cloak. So you had to see them properly. <laughs> like, even the wand is, like, it does nothing for Voldemort because, you know, he's not the true owner. And I understand that the wand does kind of defeat Voldemort at the end, but then he's, like, a He's basically one seventh of a soul by the time that the wand <laughs> yeah. is used to defeat him. And you know what was hilarious 
like that scene where the wand travels slow-mo from Voldemort to Harry in this arc and Harry jumps up to catch it. And I, I feel like it's, I feel like that would make sense if he was, he was catching a sword like Excalibur. And there's a lot of Excalibur references, you know, with the sort of Gryffindor throughout, like it being in a lake, you know, yeah, like it yeah. only appearing to those who are worthy. Um, but like when he reaches up to catch it and it's a little stick, <laughs> a little bit, you know. Yeah. But like that said, um, it was wonderful. And Snape, you know, Snape died. It was tragic. I cried. I shed a tear. <laughs> um, and I just think he acted that so perfectly, you know, where he finally said something kind of gentle-ish to Harry. Um, and Harry got to find out, you know, Snape's true involvement in all of this. And I think the the flashing through of all the scenes relatively quickly was done so well because it gave you the full story in a very short but very effective way. And the music, um, as it swelled up to sort of, you know, show us that he was, you know, he was in love with Lily and, and on the side of good all along, um, was just so beautiful and like contributed to my tears. So, um, I thought it was brilliant. What do you guys think? Yeah. So before we go on, like I, I think with that Deathly Hallows thing, the only thought that I had was that whether, and it's kind of weird though, right? Because it kind of would make sense for the Deathly Hallows to kind of become legendary after Harry uses them, as in it's like a chicken and egg thing, as in they're just three objects that happen to like, you know, at various points allow, unlock certain things for Harry, right? Like, at certain points allow Harry to accomplish his mission. And so it would kind of make sense post facto for them to become legendary, right? Not that in their, that they're legendary in and of themselves, but because those objects went through this thing, they became legendary. But what I was kind of confused by was, well, like, but they were legendary before, right? So that was the big thing for me, because, like, I can see how items become like take on this mythical status because of the events that surround them and like they become important in and of themselves like as you noted something like Excalibur right Excalibur was probably in reality no more than a pretty sharp sword but because of the legend that has ended up surrounding it it takes on a meaning of its own, right? But then it's kind of like the Hallows kind of already had that meaning even before they <laughs> were given to Harry. <laughs> so it does feel weird. Like, I want to say I'd get that, right? It's like there's a weird chicken and egg thing going on there where it actually should be the other way around. But anyway, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Mags, what did you think? Um, I really enjoyed the movie as well and agree with everything you guys have said. Um. I've just got three things to add to that. Um, the first one is about um, cutting off the head of the snake. So Neville is the one who has, who's given the task really of um, pulling the sword of Gryffindor out of the sorting hat and then cutting the head off. Um, oh, what's Nagini. the name of Nagini. Nagini. That's it, Nagini. As Nagini is about to lunge and attack and end the lives of Ron and Hermione, who are, you know, deep in each other's embrace and in, in terror. So Neville is the hero that saves the day there and kills the last Horcrux um, before Harry finishes, um, finishes uh, Voldemort. 
to me, I kind of feel I, li- I really like Neville as a character, um, but I kind of feel that maybe it should have been Ron that did that rather than Neville. Um, Ron is, you know, um, Harry's second in charge. The last movie, he was a bit of a dropkick. No one really liked him by the end. And in this movie, I think they spent a lot of time just trying to build him, him back up and the audience's goodwill in Ron back up. So I kind of feel like that honour of um, doing that heroic act, cutting the head off the snake, should have been Ron rather than Neville. Also because Neville, by this point in the movie, it's implied that he's gone through a lot of personal growth and come into his own. But we haven't really been taking on that journey as the audience um, uh, as well. So you kind of have to take it on faith that Neville has the courage and the strength now to actually do that. Um, and for me, I kind of, I feel, yeah, I feel like it should have been Ron instead of Neville, but I'm interested to, to hear what other people think. Um, the other thing for me is the ending of the film. I wish that they had ended the film on the bridge with Ron, Hermione and Harry standing there thinking and talking about the future. Because I think that act of Harry breaking the Elder Wand after Ron says that's the most powerful wand in the world, if we had it, we'd be unstoppable. And Harry does that final act of breaking the wand in half, tossing it over the bridge um, so that it can be never found again as this beautiful, powerful act of um, once and for all breaking that um, that ambition of Voldemort and distancing himself um, and his more pure intentions from Voldemort. And I kind of feel then that ends up in this optimistic note about what the future could hold. Mm. Um, and going into that epilogue, you kind of, I know that's what um, the book did, and in some ways I feel like they did that as part of fan service as well, but I think it was kind of unnecessary. Also, on a side note, the makeup, 17 years later, I don't know about you, but 36-year-olds don't look like that, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Draco Malfoy looks like he's 65. (laughs) What did they do to his face? And then Ron looks like he's he's become an alcoholic. (laughs) It's bad. So I feel they shouldn't have done that. They should have just ended it on the bridge and things would have been fine. I think that would have been a perfect ending. Hermione still looked great. Yeah, <laughs> she's the only one. She's the only one. <laughs> she's the only one. She's the only one. <laughs> the only one who's not. My, my favorite thing about that epilogue is when the film comes to a close. The final shot has Harry and Hermione framed in the center, with Ron barely in the frame. <laughs> the last thing you see of this film, of this film series, you're like, are the filmmakers trying to tell us something? <laughs> The true power couple. Well, okay, so so here's the thing, right? Because Max brings up a really interesting point there, which is that, like, so Rowling had written these books, so obviously the fans had an expectation of kind of what was going to happen. But I actually agree with Max. So on this point around Ron being the one to, like, finish off the snake, and also, like, whether you include the epilogue or not, I actually think as a film... If, if you just remove the books completely, right? Imagine the book canon didn't exist, right? And you just had these films. As a film, I actually think Mags is right in that, like, given the limited screen time we have with all of these characters, it makes sense for Ron to be the one who decapitates the snake, right? But you, it's kind of like, it's interesting, right? Because even though I think 
and look, I know that that is a subjective opinion, right? But at, at the same time, if that were actually the case, that actually it makes sense for Ron to be the one who decapitates the snake, I don't know if any filmmaker, given the popularity of the books, would have been willing to make that choice for the good of the film because there is too much fan service at stake at this point in time. I mean, this is not some sort of like rinky-dink book that only like a handful of like nerds have read like Game of Thrones at, when it started, right? This is like Harry Potter. It was like the biggest thing ever. There were people like lining up and crying if they got this book spoiled. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's an interesting question, like whether, you know, should the filmmakers have taken that bold step or was that actually a bridge too far given the popularity of these books? Yeah. Anyway, just raising it. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. guess, um, I guess for me, I just didn't see Ron. Just didn't fall in my good graces as much <laughs> any, anywhere near as much as he clearly has for you. Like the more I think about it, poor Ron. Okay, his family are so dirt poor, and along comes Harry, instant billionaire. Does he? Does he even bother buying the the Weasleys like a, a home or something? <laughs> didn't mind Neville being um, the a character who kills Nagini simply because everyone needs their moment to shine and um, Neville Longbottom has been such a klutz throughout the entire series. I mean, going back even to the very, very first installment when he um, doesn't, doesn't something explode in his face and, uh, and, and you get instantly introduced to him as this complete you know, slightly hopeless. Well, complete, not, not not quite a fool, but slightly slightly hopeless and hapless individual. And to see him have this moment of glory, I wouldn't I wouldn't begrudge him uh, that. I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice. So um, I thought I, I didn't I didn't make too much of that. Um, look, I, I think this is this is the most action packed installment in the entire series it was pretty much balls to the wall whereas deathly hallows part one um drags for significant stretches um this installment is really intense and it goes um at a rate of of knots so the pacing here was so much better than the than deathly hallows part one the movie as a whole was so much more engaging. And, um, you know, there were so many unique touches throughout this film which sort of marked it out as, as different from its predecessors. For instance, I think this might be the only movie that doesn't begin musically with what we know as the Harry Potter theme, mm. but is actually called the Hedwig theme, mm. um, playing over the, the big Warner Brothers logo as it, as it turns, flashes up on the screen. 
instead there's a there's a piece of there's a piece of music that's quite haunting i think might be played on flute or recorder which i think becomes more or less the severus snape theme in this movie and it's playing as we see snape standing up top the the clock tower at hogwarts um, watching uh, basically what looks like a military parade happening on the hogwarts grounds so um again the movie can't help but with its use of imagery to recall, you know, the dangers of authoritarianism and the sort of stifling rigidity either of bureaucracies of or of um, authoritarian structures that, you know, sort of suppress the vibrant individuality of characters such as the the heroic trio at the centre of the movie. So um, I thought I thought that that opening with without use of the Harry Potter theme. Um, was was unique and I think quite quite appropriate given that even though Harry's the big the big hero in this in this movie and, and does the deed of killing Voldemort in, in many ways the big hero is Snape. Um, it is Snape who along with Dumbledore um, agrees to um, bring him, you know, to partake in this plan to have Harry become effectively the vehicle through which, um, through which Voldemort dies by by being sacrificed to that cause. It's Snape who feels um, moral disquiet about that idea when Dumbledore seems to have not the slightest disquiet about it, and it's Snape who eventually who 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 says to 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 Dumbledore. No one must know about this. You know, he is he is in many ways the MVP of the entire series, but he insists that his role is to be wiped away from, from history. And um, it is he who, and it is the, the sort of, um, the way he, he kills Dumbledore, uh, fooling, Voldemort into thinking that he it was he who disarmed Voldemort and therefore has become the true owner of the the other one, which eventually sets in train um, the 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 events that culminate in Voldemort's demise. So much more so than the Half Blood Prince, I thought that this was Snape's movie, and um, Harry yes goes about finding and destroying the the horcruxes but ultimately um the the pieces are, are are put where they are in large part because of the sacrifices that snape makes um so that too was a was a particularly um poignant passage in the movie and when he dies and you know sheds that sheds that tear which eventually um, becomes the vehicle for all the revelation of what he's done. Um, you, I think there's a real weight to that, um, to that, to that death in a way that that wasn't safe for Dobby and probably not even for Dumbledore. I mean, uh, because Dumbledore um, sacrifices himself very willingly, and there's a sort of blank and serene look as he falls off the the clock tower at Hogwarts, whereas there's a there's a real sense of anguish as as Snape dies um, that you don't see within any of the char- of the other characters. Not 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 Sirius Black, not Dumbledore, 
not dobby when they um, when they leave their their model coils. So there was a real heft and weight about this movie, as well as you know great action and great pacing. Um, like Maggie, I, I think the movie should have ended on the bridge. In fact, one of the one of the one of the things that that I said to Anna as the film uh, faded to black just before we got the epilogue was how good would it be if this movie ended at this point? <laughs> we, we really, we really don't need, we really don't need the epilogue. I mean, we, I mean, I, I kind of understand why we're there to see, you know, the the sort of um, Lion King style um, circle of life take another turn as uh, Harry's children hop onto the Hogwarts Express. But like, who needs that? You know this, this this movie or this series of films does say does have things to say about the way in which the past echoes in the present and shapes the future. But it had already said all it had to say about that in the form of, you know, if you look at the at the meta level, the story of Harry's parents dying and how that shapes his destiny and. Um, the fact that you know Voldemort died once and he's returning. So the film says plenty already about the cyclical nature of history and um, the course of events that um, visit themselves upon the characters. So we didn't need this whole sort of um, you know Harry lifting um, the Simba cub on his shoulders uh, stuff at all um yeah just, the one thing so. the one thing i think it, it did was that was that i think was important is um we find out that harry names his son after both um albus and and severus um and like because you know gerald how you just said it's really snape's movie like his was the most noble and biggest work and sacrifice we see that Harry really acknowledges that, and he 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 does want the world to know it. And I, I guess naming his son after both of them kind of shows us that. Mm. But I, yeah. I think, I, I yeah, think, I right. yeah, I, I think also like I think it would be a brave. This kind of goes to the point that I was making earlier, which is like, given that this is how the books ended, it would be a pretty brave filmmaker to kind of just say, you know what, I think artistically it's better that we just end on the bridge, right? Like, can you imagine the fan backlash? <laughs> like, people would be storming the studios, I reckon. <laughs> anyway, sorry, yeah, Jerry. I mean, I mean, sure, but really, look, I don't know how the scene plays out in the books, um, but this this epilogue felt so superfluous and yes it's true that we get we get the harry naming his son after albus dumbledore and severus snape but at the same time um you know you really didn't need you you the 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 notion that these sacrifices had been made carried weight and are to be remembered could have been conveyed in some other way and the fact of the matter is, it, it, you know, with that awful, awful makeup, um, it just completely took you out of the movie for what should have been the final grace note, as you said goodbye to these characters. Uh, and I just thought that was that was a bit that was a bit of that was a misstep. 
and um, and not least because, as Maggie noted, like um, you know the not only was the makeup bad, but the actual sort of makeup choices were odd as well. So, you know, um, Ron looking not just like an alcoholic, but like this, you know, slovenly wife bashing dad. <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> Draco Malfoy had already edged <laughs> out of the series. Like, like, Draco Malfoy looked about 40 in the last film. I mean, he, he's, been, he's been too old for these films for about five of them. <laughs> And, and, and to have him look basically like, like, like a grandfather, um, on on the step, you know, sort of on death's door, you know, sort of virtually skeletal-like, uh, was just bizarre. <laughs> so, so I, I think that was the that was the only that was the only bumbo in the movie for me. I think everything else was 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 sensational. I don't, look, the, this movie didn't have the same sort of whimsy and charm i think of prisoner of azkaban which had a real sense of fun about it particularly even the the time travel bit um and so that for me will always be the sort of high point of the series which um which represents the merging together of the 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 darkening themes but also capturing or retaining some flavor of the wit whimsy and wonder of the of the first two films Whereas, you know, after Prison of Azkaban, they get pretty dark pretty quickly. But for sheer um, sort of edge of your seat, uh, gripping entertainment, it is pretty hard to think of a film in this series that surpasses Deathly Hallows Part 2. Yeah. Look, I, I 100% agree with you, Jazz. I, I think this this is a... Like, as you said, it's edge of seat, right? It is really, like, for the entirety of the... And I think it's actually a potentially shorter film than Deathly Hallows Part 1. Like, when I was looking at the runtime, I think it's about two hours, ten minutes, which I think, like, you know, I think that says something, right? Because it does move at a fair clip, and it, it you are entertained and thrilled throughout that entire runtime. So, yeah, definitely um, agreed. Um Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to talk about some of the scenes that I really enjoyed in this film, right? Um, I think um, one of the first scenes where you really feel like... So I'm, I'm just going to talk about these, and then you guys can pipe in if you agree or disagree. I think there is a scene when the Battle of Hogwarts starts, um, and... Um, well, sorry. So it, the Battle of Hogwarts is underway, right? And Harry and Hermione and Ron are kind of running through this battlefield. And I think, like, basically you see them, like, there's all these, like, green bolts flying around. And all of a sudden, it's kind of, like, implied that there are a lot of Death Eaters out there. And there's a lot of Death Eaters hurling, like, killing curses, right? So this is, all of a sudden, what's going on in Hogwarts has just escalated. This is a real battle. And then it kind of becomes incredibly real when you see... This is even before you find out um, Ron's brother has died, right? Like, this is when you see Fenrir Greyback basically snacking on Lavender Brown. Like, for me, that was a super confronting scene. Because Lavender Brown, up to this point in time, has been a comic relief character. She was like Ron's girlfriend, and they were like just doing comic relief with him. And then there is this sort of really confronting scene where you see this, like, killer basically, like, snacking on her. 
And then, as the the shot, basic the last shot of her is her like sort of lifeless body staring, right? As like Harry and Ron and Hermione have to run off to achieve their mission. Um, I thought that was a very striking scene that immediately brought the severity of the situation to light, right? It was, um, yeah. To this day, I still think about that scene. I'm like, oh man, that is a that scene just really troubles me. Um, I think the other scene that I really enjoy in this film is um, the actual... I I talked about this earlier. The scene where Dumbledore and Harry are having that sort of conversation in that sort of twilight zone place, right? In the place between life and death. Like, King's Cross Station, I think, um, and it's just, like, completely white. Um, and I think it's like a really powerful scene because not only is, does it actually, is it plot wise important because it actually shows, like, I, I think that the scene shows how Harry was able to survive because within this vessel, which was Harry Potter, there are actually two souls existing within that vessel. And when Voldemort cast that killing curse, that killing curse hit the part the soul that was the Voldemort Horcrux part of that soul, which is why you see this, like, crippled, disgusting creature hiding there that kind of looks like Voldemort, right? Um, But I think the reason why I love that scene is that um, there's this almost, like, fourth-wall-breaking moment where Harry asks Dumbledore, "Um, is this real? (laughs) Right? And Dumbledore kind of responds, um... Well, you know, Harry says, well, is this real? Because I'm pretty sure this is just happening in my mind. And um, Dumbledore kind of responds that, well, just because it's happening in your mind um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. And also that um, there's a bit of a conversation before that where Dumbledore talks about the power of words. I think that's actually a really nice sort of nod to kind of... um, the books themselves, right? Which is actually, you know, like, these books were able to, like, you know, conjure up so many sort of wonderful emotions, you know, like, you know, the sense of whimsy and wonder, the sense of, like, you know, heroism, all these sorts of things, right? And those emotional reactions that we have to films and um, fiction, like, just because the events that are described are not necessarily re- real, doesn't necessarily invalidate um, the how genuine those emotions are, right? How genuine the connection is, right? Like, that sense of, like, connection that people have for heroism and self-sacrifice and all that type of stuff, right? That is, that's still real. It, it, just because it is portrayed in fiction, your connection to that is ne- not necessarily diminished because it comes from a work of fiction. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that scene because I, I felt like it was a moment when the author and the filmmakers were basically directly speaking to the audience. I really appreciate it. I thought it was like a really nice sort of scene. Um, the other scene that I um, really loved was... Um, and I've said this before, is Narcissa Malfoy. Well, it's a, it's a series of scenes, but I, I really love the character of Narcissa Malfoy in this. She's not in it a lot, but I think when she's in it, she's incredibly purposeful because Narcissa Malfoy has one goal, which is to protect her family. Um, and you saw that in Half-Blood Prince when she made Snape um, swear the 
um, oath. But in this film, Narcissa Malfoy, basically Lucius Malfoy at this point in the films has been reduced to basically, he's just groveling because he knows that he is in Voldemort's bad books. Um, and he doesn't really know how to get back into Voldemort's good books. But more than that, he's too cowardly to basically renounce the whole um, situation with Voldemort. While Narcissa Malfoy is someone who comes across as immediately incredibly strong and purposeful because she understands that if her family continues to be associated with Voldemort, um, Voldemort is a deranged psychopath, right? Like, she... Like, even though she hangs out with all these Death Eaters, she 100% is able to see that the way this ends is badly. Anybody who is involved with this guy, it is going to end badly for them. And so, the scene where Narcissa is in the forest, and she deliberately, basically sabotages Voldemort, because she knows that Harry is alive, and she tells him that he is dead. (laughs) Um, And then more than that, immediately when she goes to Hogwarts, her number one goal is to basically get her husband to get Draco to come over to their side. And the moment things change, Narcissa Malfoy is out of that. Like, I love it because the, the final scene that you see of them is that all hell is breaking loose in the courtyard at Hogwarts. Death Eaters are kind of escaping and, like... Narcissa Malfoy takes her son in her hand and works, walks with purpose directly out of that bridge. She does not care an iota how this thing resolves. As far as she's concerned, if she stays there a moment longer, her family is at risk. And I, I felt that that was like quite a... I, I know that it's kind of like a side character, but for me, it's like it works really, really well because I can fully... Un- I could see... I, I can see that there's like... A level of realism to the way that character is written because in times of difficulty there are absolutely people who are 100% just focused on the welfare of their family and they don't care about any of these sorts of greater events that are going on right I thought that was great I think it was like a great little I thought it was filmed filmed really well it was a great little bit of character that was in these films um, other things that I loved um, I think Ralph Fiennes, again, is amazing as Voldemort. Um, For me, the great Voldemort scene is when he comes to that courtyard to accept the surrender of all the Hogwarts students. Um, And he is such a poor winner. (laughs) In the sense that he just can't stop gloating, right? He's just this horrible person who, like, even though... In his mind, he's got them completely beaten. They're at his mercy, and he cannot show an ounce of grace or anything like that, right? You know, Neville comes forward, and the way he treats him is absolutely horrible. When Draco comes forward, there's that amazing scene, and this is 100% acted by Ralph Fiennes, where he comes and, like, gives Draco that hug, and it's this like disgustingly awkward hug because you know it's part of Voldemort's character he doesn't know human love he's aping this sort of um gesture of affection essentially right um I thought it was great like I think Ralph Fiennes as Voldemort is absolutely amazing um 
I feel like when I originally watched these films, I didn't really appreciate how good he was and how much he actually brings to the role, even though he is covered up by a lot of makeup or CG. Like, when you look at these films, there are these little actions that Voldemort takes, like his gestures, the way he physically expresses himself. All of that has to be Ralph Fiennes, because that's not done through CG. And all of those things really convey Voldemort's character. So, yes, good work for him for taking a role that other people could potentially have phoned in because there was so much makeup and CG and really elevating it to another level. Um, yeah, and I, I think the last thing... last thing. Sorry, I mean, I'm gushing about a few things in this film, but uh, um, the last thing that I kind of want to gush about is... Um, yeah, I, I think that... Um, the final showdown uh, between Harry and Voldemort is, like, really, really well done, right? Like, I mean, they kind of have two showdowns. They have the showdown in the forest, where Harry basically accepts um, the killing curse directly, which, um, yeah, like, I mean, I think that's... uh, Like, the way it's portrayed in the film is really great. It's, like, this amazing selfless act of heroism. Um, he doesn't know, basically, that he's going to get a get-out-of-jail card. Like, I mean, the film doesn't cheapen it in that way because he doesn't know in advance that that Avada Kedavra is going to hit the Horcrux, I guess, potentially. <laughs> That's what happens um, before it hits him. Um, yeah, and then also you have this the final fight between the two where Voldemort is kind of just unleashed and... Um, you see them apparating and their kind of faces start blending kind of into each other. Um, yeah, like, that, that, I, I think that was like a beautifully executed scene. I, I think I said that earlier, but I think it was a beautifully ex- executed scene. Um, I think it really taps into this thing that has been going on through the films where Harry feels like he's unable to differentiate himself between him, uh, differentiate between himself and Voldemort. Um, and I think it's really great that, you know, after these, after the battle, you have the scene on the bridge, which, as Mag said, Harry definitively distinguishes himself from Voldemort by kind of breaking the wand. Because, um, yeah, it's this, this great act of giving up power because that's kind of never what he sought, which is why he is nothing like Voldemort at all, right? And, and to be honest, like, as a viewer, one of the things that I, I always kind of struggled with is that, apart from the fact that he speaks Parseltongue, um, like, <laughs> Harry oh. is never really like Voldemort, so... Yeah, anyway, sorry, Mags, go. No, I was just... I thought you were going to talk about um, Parseltongue and how you could learn it like a language, like a no, foreign language. No, go, go, you, t- you could talk about that. Oh, no, it's just... With when Ron goes down to the Chamber of Secrets again with Hermione, and lo and behold, he now speaks Castle Tongue too. Because I said Her- that exact thing to Gerald. <laughs> I was like, "It's not a language. You can't just overhear someone speaking it and then speak it, or they'd all be speaking it. It's a magical power. It's not a, a freaking language." Yeah. <laughs> Guys, it's French. It's the new French. <laughs> yeah, I found that hilarious because remember in this Chamber of Secrets, they were like, no one speaks parcel tongue. Like, it's like once in a generation someone speaks it. And then Ron is just like, yeah, I heard him speak it, so I 
so I've kind of like just picked it up. He speaks in his sleep. <laughs> that was the explanation. <laughs> exactly. So why is it is it, why is it that people are so like surprised that he speaks Parseltongue? He should have just Harry should have just said to them, "I've been taking a correspondence course in Parseltongue." So like, <laughs> sucks to you. <laughs> did does did you did you notice that when when Ron says Harry speaks a lot in his sleep? Didn't you notice? Um, Hermione gets strangely defensive. Yes, that also is weird, right? <laughs> what is Ron implying like, there? <laughs> and, and what is her reaction suggesting? <laughs> well, look, they have been sleeping together in the tent, right? Not in the same bed, but in close proximity in the tent. But yes, I agree. Yep. That was a weird thing to say. <laughs> um, I... I... I really liked um, on the train at the train platform scene where Harry's talking to Dumbledore. Dumbledore says that line: "Does it um, don't pity the dead, pity the living, and pity those who live without love." I thought that was a beautiful little, you know, that sort of last mm-hmm. uh, nugget of wisdom that Dumbledore passes on. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I, I think, yeah, I love that scene. I really do. I think there's a lot of stuff, things in that scene. I mean, it's an exposition kind of heavy scene, but there's a lot of things in that scene which I think really sum up a lot of the themes in this in this saga. Mm. Yeah. Andrew, did you, were you about to say something? Yeah, so I... On the Narcissa scenes, I also really love her scenes, um, but I guess what I take from them, like, you're right, like, she'll do anything for her son, um, but what I really take from them is the way the dynamic between her and her husband changes over the course of the films, because when the films start, Lucius is a figure of great power and competence right like he seems to be the main villain because you know he's not a bumbling fool like his son is or some of the other sort of one one film villains are he he's he is cartoon evilish but he also seems to have a brain and he seems to have a lot of influence in the community and Narcissa when she first appears is this like wife who kind of stands scared silently behind him and he is the leader of the family and as the books progress and he gets himself you know into uh, Voldemort's bad books you can just see Narcissus's contempt for him and just complete dissatisfaction with the way things are going for their family um, grow to the point where at the end she takes control you know she makes the decisions to the point of even lying to Voldemort um, orchestrating you know, getting her hands on her son and then pulling him off, and it's it's her husband who just sort of runs after. Yeah. Him, you know? She doesn't even she doesn't even turn to look at him. She yeah. just powers off with her son. That's all she cares about. Her son. He just follows. Yeah. And I I kind of loved loved that. Um, but you know, I also agree. Ray finds amazing, and I said the same thing to Gerald when he gives um, Malfoy that hug. That yeah. um, you know that. <laughs> awkward like it was so well done so well done the only thing i want to say is i'm going to disagree with all of you and say i liked the final scene at the train station i agree the makeup (laughs) was 
horrific and should have been should have been better. But if the makeup had been better, the scene itself, I really liked it. And the reason I liked it is because I just, you know, one thing about me, if something has a sad ending, I'm not going to watch it. Now, the ending with Harry breaking the wand, obviously not a sad ending. Um, it was it's, it's triumphant, bittersweet, and a lesson learned. Um, but like it's just come off the back of this huge war at Hogwarts and all of these people we have cared for have died. You know, like Fred, I think it was Fred, um, Snape, Parvati's sister, like the twins, one of the Indian twins died for God's sake. Yeah, sense, that's okay? right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like some awful, awful things have happened and I just needed it to end but further away in time from that and on a much more lighter, whimsical note because the film starts off light and whimsical, it gets darker. I just needed that ending maybe to take me back a little bit to that ha that happier kind of time. So I really liked that, to be honest. And I liked getting that glimpse into the future, you know? Like, yes, we can take it for granted that these three will live happily ever after, but I'd rather be told. So... <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the reason why I'm not super fond of the epilogue is also, like, it kind of cements that Harry gets with Ginny. And, like, I, that relationship still doesn't really sit well with me, right? Like, the way it's portrayed in this, these films, Harry and Ginny are kind of, like, forced together. Like, even in this film, when Harry and Ginny meet each other, it's like... You know, like, they have the moment where they stop and they look at each, at each other and they kiss and stuff, but it's just kind of like, as a viewer, I kind of look at that and I'm like, you're forcing that situation rather than it doesn't feel organic as part of, like, the films that we've kind of watched, right? I so, think it was a mistake for her to introduce romantic love into this at all because she had done such a great job with friendship love and familial love, you know, and yeah. other types of love that she just didn't have to bring in romantic love because yeah. she didn't do it well and it was yeah. unnecessary. Yeah, and that's why, like, I guess for me, like, it, it would have been great if you did have an epilogue, but maybe don't situate it, like, 17 years or however many years it was down the track, right? Because then, like, you know, it could have been, like, a year down the track and Harry is, like, making up for his lost year at school because he needs to study to be an aura or something like that, right? When you see that things have kind of remained, gone back to normal. Look, I can I kind of un also understand why they she probably put in the epilogue because she wanted to just put a capstone on things, right? Like, I feel like when you do an epilogue like that, it's kind of like, well... I'm not going to leave it open for sequels in the future. I'm going to exit on a high, and that is it, right? I'm going to dot that I, cross that T, see you later. Um, I think potentially that was her thinking behind having an epilogue that far in the future, because she could easily have done it much closer to kind of after the Battle of Hogwarts and still created a sense of finality, but then that would have opened it up for Harry Potter sequels, you know, Adventures with Harry the Aura, or adventures with, like, Hermione and Ron and Harry, or whatever it is, right? But by just doing it that far down, it's kind of like, that's it, the end. Right, let's be clear, by the time... There's no sequel after this, because, like, as we all said, Ron is this obese alcoholic at this point in time, so what is he going to do, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. Um, okay. Is there anything else we want to say about Harry Potter? I mean, we've watched eight films. Is there anything anyone wants to say to kind of cap this off? 
all I said to Gerald was, you know, two years on, we could totally rewatch this again and it would still feel like we were watching it for the first time somehow. There's just something about it that's timeless. Mm. Yes, I agree. I, I really agree. I, I really agree. Like, uh, rewatching this these films this time has really been a joy and I mean like we've been doing it because of like we are doing it regularly because like we kind of um wanted to do them for the podcast but yeah it's been like a really fun experience um yeah Mags? Um no I, I totally agree I think there's something something fairy tale like and classic about the stories so um yeah the only thing I guess is there's a whole bunch of other um, J.K. Rowling, um, Harry Potter-esque books and movies and things that are part of the same universe. Um, but compared to this original set of films, it, it just doesn't shine a candle to it. So Yeah. There that's is a, something. Yeah, that's, that's a good point that you bring up there, Mags, because have, I mean... I'm asking Gerald and Anager this. Have you guys watched these film prequels, sequels, whatever I think we've it is? Seen one. We've I think watched, seen we watched one, the right? very first. We watched the very first one. Um, Didn't like it. Yeah, well, it wasn't. It wasn't great. Like a lot of the personnel returned for it, so I think that that movie's directed by David Yates, as this one was. Um, but like, uh, it just it just didn't capture the magic and I think I think the problem is one of the problems is that um, by having um, the characters by having the focal point of this series be these kids and the story of how they grow up and you know grow into their powers and confront this overwhelming evil and triumph in the face of almost impossible odds. That's a really engaging story and it's a really engaging way into the world. Whereas the Fantastical Beasts movies, first of all, assume a lot of knowledge and second of all, because you don't have that point of entry through the through the experiences of these children and then ultimately adolescents, uh, you, you, there's just it's just not you don't have an easy glide path into the world as you did in the, in this original series. So, so they're a lot they're a lot less enjoyable. And also the fact that you know, sort of, when 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 Colin Farrell turns into Johnny Depp, you're like, well, you know, I'm I'm stepping off this train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got to say, I I don't think I even watched the second one. I think there's only been two made, right? There was Fantastic Beasts and. I don't even remember the name of the one that followed that. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, regardless of what happens with um, this sort of magical wizarding world, we still have these eight original Harry Potter films. Those books still exist. And I think uh, our consensus is that they're a pretty good watch and a pretty timeless watch as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm very glad we did this. Um, thank you everyone who is listening um all two of you out there <laughs> for joining <laughs> us on this adventure through harry potter again 
Um, regardless of whether anyone's listening or not, I've had a great time discussing this with friends. So thank you very much, uh, podcast crew, for doing this little uh, journey together. It's been really fun. Um, yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about Harry Potter in general? I think no, that's it. I'm right? just, is there a saying? Is there a saying that runs throughout the movie that we can end it on? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Expellio! <laughs> Akuchio! Akio! Okay, one, one thing Akuchio. that... <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I found hilarious throughout this film is the number of times I use the Accio spell. Like, like at one point, Harry just says, Accio Horcrux, as if he <laughs> says that the Horcrux is just going to come to him. I found that hilarious, <laughs> that they just used that spell <laughs> um, again and again, and it just basically never works. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, look, thank you very much, everyone. And, um, yeah, we'll be back soon with other films, probably newer films to talk about. But, yeah, thanks for joining us for chatting about Harry Potter. Um, speak to everyone soon. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night. Bye. Bye. Yeah.